Well, in uh, Matthew 13, Jesus told the parable of the sower. And later in that chapter, he explained the parable to his disciples. And in verse 22, he said, The seed falling among the thorns uh, refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. So this sermon series is based on that phrase, the worries of this life. And whether you're a believer or you're not a believer, there are plenty of things out there that can cause us lots of anxiety. In 2008, there was a global financial crisis, which is said to have been the most severe crash since the Great Depression of the 1930s. Then in 2016, the British people were asked to vote on staying in the European Union or leaving the European Union. Uh, By a narrow margin, of course, uh, the vote went to the Leave camp and then triggered three and a half years of political wrangling and deadlock. So the economic and the political upheaval that we've experienced in these last few years is certainly something that can cause plenty of worry and anxiety. Why is that? Well, because people that are making decisions elsewhere, uh, those decisions affect all of us every day. So I've been given the sermon title, Help, Brexit, the Economy, Political Instability. Thank you, Steph Liston, for that title. Enormous subject, but I will try and address it in a relatively short time. So here's my visual representation of that particular title. <laughs> the, the Beatles made the film Help in 1965. None of you can remember that, but hopefully you've heard of the Beatles. I uh, just want to say that the Beatles have nothing to do with this sermon at all whatsoever, but Help with an exclam- exclamation mark, that was my visual uh, representation of that. Uh, top right we have, who's that man? Nigel Farage. (laughs) He has done more than anybody uh, to get the the UK out of the European Union. Uh, Always always, uh, strikes me as slightly ironic that he has a surname which sounds incredibly French, (laughs) Farage. Um, But anyway, he is a politician responsible for for that, uh, largely. The next picture, bottom left-hand side, the economy. Who is that man? Who knows the name Right, you, you know, because you work for him, don't you, probably, <laughs> the government. Who else knows this man's name? Rishi Sunak, yeah. Um, who is he? Chancellor of the Exchequer, uh, as of last week. Um, before that point, there was a man called Sajid Javid, who was the Chancellor of the Exchequer. Some of you haven't caught up with that name yet, but this man is now probably the second most powerful minister in the government, really, and hardly any of us know his, know his name. He is the MP for Richmond in Yorkshire, uh, and he's risen quickly through the ranks to become the Chancellor of the Exchequer. And these other two, do you know who they are? Of course you do. So um, these two are uh, good friends, yeah. <laughs> Lead... At the moment, lead our main political parties. We're not sure it's going to happen after Jeremy Corbyn is replaced uh, in April. Um, But it seems to me that these um, two have moved their parties further apart. We seem to be more polarised now politically. 
uh, with the Conservatives have moved probably a little bit further over to the right of, of politics. And under Jeremy Corbyn's leadership, uh, the Labour Party have moved towards the left. Uh, parties in the middle have been a bit squeezed out, to say the least. And then we have the Scottish National Party dominating Scottish politics, and they're committed to taking Scotland out of the United Kingdom. So all in all, it's been a pretty bumpy right. Uh, and these things can cause us enormous anxiety and worry and concern. I thought long and hard about this title, this sermon title, and in the end, I think it all comes back to concerns about authority. It's the authority of the democratic process. Can we trust it? Should we ever have had a referendum in the first place? How do you honour the outcome of a referendum uh, when it was such a close-run thing? Did people really truly know what they, were gonna, what they were voting for and what the implications were? To what extent should a referendum that happened in 2016 have authority for today? Then we have the authority of the economy and the people that make decisions about finances. Why does the UK's national debt stand at 1.786 trillion pounds today? Uh, how did that happen? I think the UK needs cap, doesn't it? The Christians Against Poverty. And <laughs> uh, maybe Ruth, you, that's a little, you know, that's your next client. <laughs> Whose idea was universal credit? Lots of uh, pain around that change of policy. Uh, what is Rishi Sunak going to do about the budget on March the 11th? I think that's when it is, uh, to sort many of these things out. And then it's the authority of political uh, leaders and political decisions. Can we really trust politicians? Are they interested in helping make things better or are they more interested in their personal ambition? Can we really trust authority at all? And what perspective should we have as believers? Is it any different from anyone else? What, uh, what does the, the Bible say about these things? Uh, how are we to respond to the political and economic upheaval and sometimes the lack of moral leadership in political leaders? You know, the New Testament takes a bit of a different approach to these things because the New Testament keeps in mind that ultimately Jesus will be seen to be the one who reigns. He is the one who reigns now, but ultimately he will come back. He will uh, be visibly establishing his kingdom on the earth. The New Testament then has this eternal perspective built into it. In the light of eternity, these current troubles that we're going through are very temporary. They are relatively insignificant, but nevertheless, they're still very real to us and they definitely cause a lot of grief. If we were to lose sight of that eternal perspective, we could get very, very unsettled. There's always corruption in any political system. There are always injustices. There have always been cover-ups, uh, nepotism, favoritism, discrimination, prejudice, one-sidedness. It's always been there. One of the good things about reading the Bible is you get this whole sweep of history and you see it all uh, from one empire to another, from one king to another. Some are good, some are bad. Uh, there's corruption, all of these things. As the writer of the Ecclesiastes says, there's nothing new under the sun. And so uh, things will be good for a while, things will be bad, there'll be corruption, all the rest of it. Uh, and we can get very unsettled if we look at what's happening immediately around us. 
in our immediate uh, time. But we have to keep that eternal perspective. And so I want to look at what Paul writes about uh, this whole idea of authority in Romans 13. Uh, And it doesn't really sit comfortably for us in our modern uh, day mindsets because we're fiercely individualistic and we have this sort of rights demanding society that we live in. But this is the word of God and we need to take it seriously. This is what God is speaking to us about. Uh, It needs to affect our thinking and our actions. Uh, So often we can approach the word of God the other way around and sort of judge the word of God ourselves, but we need to put ourselves under the authority of the word of God. So let's uh, uh, read this passage. I'm going to read it out for us uh, from uh, verse 1 through to verse 7. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For the rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honour to whom honour is owed. Well, I'm going to unpack this in a little bit more detail and go through it uh, a verse at a time, section at a time, and just to see what Paul is really saying here. The first thing he says in verse 1 is, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Uh, It is clear from this passage that Paul is talking about uh, local and national forms of government, not spiritual uh, forces or powers. Uh, Some people have wanted to interpret this scripture in that way. But it's quite clear that Paul is talking about uh, government here. He says it's an instruction for every person, so that includes all of us in this room. And he uses the phrase to be subject to. That is to place oneself under someone else's authority. He doesn't use the stronger term like obey. I think uh, believers, many believers would find it impossible to go along with the idea of uh, obeying every demand of the government, especially if the governments are going beyond their remit, uh, and especially if they're asking for the sort of allegiance that is only really uh, to be God's alone. So he starts in that way, and he carries on in verse 1 and 2. He says, For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. 
So here Paul is establishing a very important principle because he says the same thing in three different ways, three different times. Basically, he's saying all human authority is derived from God's authority. All human authority is derived from God's authority. Now, that does not mean that because God establishes authorities, God is responsible for their behavior. If you remember when Jesus appeared before Pontius Pilate, he told him, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. It means that if we disobey the authorities, in effect, we're disregarding or disrespecting God. So it's an important principle for us to understand. All authority derives from God's authority. Verse 3 says, rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. In other words, if you're staying within uh, the rules, if you're keeping the law, you don't need to be afraid or concerned. If you're breaking the law, then you should be nervous and afraid because then punishment will follow. Now, what Paul is saying is true of a good administration. But what do you do if the administration is punishing people who are doing good things and rewarding people who do bad things? Because on many, many occasions, authorities misuse their power. I remember many years ago uh, when I was leading the church in Wimbledon, uh, one of my congregation members, she asked me a very good question. She had grown up in Zimbabwe uh, under Robert Mugabe's uh, government. And she said to me, are we to submit to such a corrupt government? That was her question. And so we had a discussion about that. And when you read Romans 13, it would appear that Paul is saying, yes, you are to submit to government. We are to be under authority, even bad authority. Uh, And we have to remember that Paul is writing this to a church in Rome where they they didn't have a Jewish or Christian ethical background. Uh, So he's writing to believers in a a situation which is very different from our own. We take for granted our Christian heritage and the way that's shaped our laws in this land. But that was not the case when Paul was writing this to a church in Rome. So this is a a serious question. Are we to submit to authorities that are corrupt or are, are bad? We have to balance what Paul is saying here with other scriptures. So in Acts 5, 29, for example, uh, Peter and the apostles are before the Sanhedrin, the, the authority, the religious authorities in Jerusalem. And they had given them strict orders not to teach in the name of Jesus. And Peter says, and the apostles say, we must obey God rather than men. So we continue to submit to authorities when they have, uh, so are we to continue to, to submit to authorities when they've misused that authority? Uh, John Stott has uh, written about this quite extensively, but uh, just as one of his quotes, John Stott was a, a Christian leader in London here, a great thinker, a great theologian. He says, The principle is clear. We are to submit right up to the point where obedience to the state would entail disobedience to God. But if the state commands what God forbids, or forbids what God commands, then our plain Christian duty is to resist, not to submit. To disobey the state in order to obey God. 
Let me give you some other biblical examples of when uh, believers have got to the point where they felt they must obey God rather than, than men. Remember back to the time of Moses' birth. There were some midwives who had been commanded by Pharaoh to kill all the newborn babies, the boys. Uh, they refused to do that. They chose to obey God's law rather than Pharaoh's law. As a result, Moses is born and he's safe. But they defied Pharaoh. If you think on to the book of Daniel, you have King Nebuchadnezzar who issues a decree that all subjects must worship the golden image of himself. And famously, three young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, refuse to bow down. And they're thrown into the fiery furnace and miraculously they escape alive. Later on in that book, you have a similar situation with Daniel. Uh, King Darius this time says, nobody uh, must be worshipped except me for the next 30 days. And Daniel chooses to ignore that edict. He chooses to ignore that command. And he carries on with his normal prayer pattern of praying three times a day. And uh, his enemies grasp him up and he's in trouble and gets thrown into the lion's den. Again, miraculously, he survives. So there is a place for civil disobedience. There are moments where we have to obey God rather than obey uh, the laws that are being given to us. Fortunately, we live in a democracy uh, and there are lots of different ways in which we can make our feelings known. We can write to our local councillors, we can write to MPs, we can sign petitions, we can take part in peaceful demonstrations. I'm interested to ask how many people have exercised their political right and ever been on a protest or a demonstration or a march? Yeah, good number of people, not everybody. But we have that freedom uh, to do that. I have never been on a political march or demonstration, I have to admit. But I have been on a demonstration, which is very, very important. Um, I am a, uh, a Wimbledon football club supporter. I... I, <laughs> I uh, in the back in the day when it was Wimbledon Football Club, um, there was some talk about moving this club lock, stock and barrel from Wimbledon to Dublin. Seriously. They wanted to move the whole club to Dublin so that the play you'd have to go to Dublin for all the home matches and then the team would have to play in Dublin and their away matches come back to the U you know, to England to play their away matches. Ridiculous. So the fans decided they would have a, a, a demonstration, a protest outside Merton Civic Centre in Morden. And I thought, this is, this is a really serious matter. I mean, I've got to... I've got to do this. I've got to be there. So I took my two children, two to my, my sons. They're very young. Uh, we went to Morden and uh, we protested outside the civic centre, um, chanting, we'll never go to Dublin. We'll never go to Dublin. There were people holding banners and scarves and all the rest of it. Uh, I was very careful to avoid the TV cameras over the other side. I didn't want to get onto the local news. Uh, I couldn't stay for very long because I had to rush back to church to lead a revival meeting. But... <laughs> So I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not a political activist exactly, but uh, that, that was my history. My oldest son, uh, he's, 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 he, he's a bit of a, a socialist, and he, he was in Brighton, he used to live in Brighton, and he got involved in a demonstration once, he was on the streets, marching along, and then he turned to the person next to me and said, what are we protesting about? <laughs> no idea, but I'm happy to protest, you know. But we have that opportunity in this country, which is wonderful. When Paul is writing, that isn't there. If you protested then, you'd just thrown in prison or executed or something. It was a different day. 
Verses 4 and 5 says, uh, He is God's servant. The authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. He does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, the avenger, who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. So the state is uh, God's agent to bring justice and to maintain order. Ultimately, God will punish all evil. And uh, at the present time, though, he exercises his rule, if you like, through those law courts, through those authorities. He will make things right that are wrong now. But at the present time, that's how it works. There is a difference, of course, between the individual and the state. The state has a right to punish. The individual doesn't. Paul argues that under God's The authorities are there to carry out their duties of enforcing the laws for the benefit of society as a whole. Now, what does Paul mean by this phrase, for the sake of conscience? Well, I think believers have a higher motive for uh, obeying the authorities. It's not just that you want to stay out of trouble with the authorities, but they know that their obedience to those in authority uh, is what they should do to please God. It's part of God's will. So most of the Bible has been written in a context of political instability and economic volatility. And each succeeding empire comes and goes, often led by tyrants who were corrupt. We have to remember that Christianity was birthed in a nation that was under the rule of Rome. And that Rome was led by characters like Caesar Augustus, Nero, Caligula, Um, hardly benevolent leaders or emperors. They also took upon themselves godlike status and they were totally powerful. I think the old saying is probably true. Power tends to corrupt. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. In other words, as a person's power increases, their morality decreases. And we see that Again and again, in different uh, settings, uh, that is possible for people's power to increase, but their morality to decrease. Now, we can be a bit cynical about politicians in our day, at this present day. Uh, We can be a bit cynical about the democratic process. But I think all believers should show proper respect for MPs and those that are in politics, um, even if you don't agree with their politics. Uh, they are trying to do a, a good job. They're trying to serve others. Now, they may have different reasons for doing that. Some of those reasons might be slightly dubious. Their motives might not be completely pure. But many are in politics because they genuinely want to make a difference to society. And they deserve our support and our help uh, and our prayers as well have come to that. When we get over-anxious about things like Brexit, economic forecasts, the latest political shenanigans, we must remember that God is in charge. God reigns. Ultimately, everyone will see Jesus' government established on the earth when he returns. He reigns over everything, the democratic process, money, financial markets, politics. He is returning one day. Every knee will bow, every tongue confess that he is Lord. Ultimately, every injustice will be judged fairly by God. We may not be able to trust politicians fully today. I mean, they're human beings, and so they make mistakes. 
they uh, are subject to other things going on around them. Those involved in the financial markets, the bankers, uh, all, of, all of these people involved in major decisions are only human and they're prone to making those mistakes. And some may be indulging in corrupt practices. But there is one who we can trust completely because he's perfect. Jesus is returning. He will set up his kingdom and his kingdom will be very different from every other kingdom that has ever existed. Earlier, I mentioned Jesus in his interaction with Pontius Pilate. So in John 18 and verse 36, Jesus says to Pontius Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants here uh, would have been fighting uh, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. So Jesus is setting up a very different kind of kingdom. Jesus' kingdom is a place where uh, you can't see it. It's invisible. It's not, it's not visible. You can't sort of say, look at a map and say, this is where the kingdom of God is. This is where Jesus' kingdom is. His kingdom exists in the heart of every believer uh, around the world. And so you can't see it. You can't measure it. You can't uh, delineate it in any sense. We have to remember that every political system and those leaders that go with those political systems will ultimately disappear. No human kingdom or empire can last forever, but Jesus' kingdom will last forever. Just a few hours after meeting with Pontius Pilate, Jesus was crucified. And that was a history-changing moment. Because from that moment onwards, it becomes possible for people to have a personal relationship with God. From that moment onwards, sin and death have been swept aside so that believers can have new life in Jesus. From that moment onwards, the door of Jesus' kingdom is flung open for everyone, Jew or non-Jew, to walk through. From that moment onwards, the kingdom was inaugurated. It continues to grow. It continues to grow as people put their faith in Jesus Christ, one after another, all around the world. The invisible kingdom is growing in the hearts of every believer. And Isaiah 9-7 tells us of the greatness of his government and peace. There will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So when Jesus returns to the earth, he will establish his kingdom. He will reign in complete fairness. He's not subject to the wishes of the voters. He doesn't need to buy influence like a U.S. presidential candidate. He is not swayed by public opinion. His reign will not be full of fake news and political spin. As he says to Pilate, I am the truth. Uh, Pontius Pilate's asking, what is truth? And truth is standing right in front of him. He will reign in a truthful way, in a righteous way, in a pure way. We can all know something of that reign here and now. We don't need to wait until he returns. Indeed, we shouldn't wait until he returns. And when you go back to the parable of the sower, it's clear that Jesus is saying the worries of this life, in this case, the economics, the political worries, they can actually choke you getting hold of this truth about Jesus being Lord. 
they can choke out the idea of, of the good news, the gospel message. The good news seed is falling, but it falls sometimes among thorns. And these thorns are these worries and anxieties of life. And if we let them, they will choke out uh, and obscure the good news that Jesus is giving, this life-giving message. The worries of life prevent you from seeing Jesus as he truly is. The worries of this life stop you from making that life-changing decision to follow Jesus. The worries of this life stop you from seeing the eternal perspective. For those that are already believers, the worries of this life can, can stop you from continuing to follow Jesus. Anxiety is like a thick fog which obscure, uh, obscures the clear view of Jesus and the good news message. So we need to give time to thinking about what Jesus has done on the cross because if we don't, we'll just get caught up with worrying about bills, worrying about the next uh, budget, worrying about interest rates, worrying about all these different things that are going on around us. And we'll never get hold of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and his wonderful message of good news. There's an old chorus which you sometimes sing, Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's bow our heads together. I'm just going to pray together. This message is very relevant for all of us, whether we're believers or not, because if we're getting worried and anxious about these things, it means that we're not really focusing on Jesus in the way that we should be. If you're not a believer today, I just want to say to you, do not wait until he returns. It'll be too late then. You need to bow the knee and confess him as Lord now before he returns and sets up his kingdom. There are always going to be political worries, always going to be economic worries. Put them aside and focus on the one who's going to establish the perfect kingdom. Hebrews 3.15 says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Don't let these things choke the good news seed. So let it, let it grow in your life. Let it grow in your life. Focus on what Jesus has done for you. He died on the cross so that you could have a personal relationship with God. He died on the cross so that your sin no longer is a barrier between you and God. He died on the cross so that death no longer holds terror and fear for you. It's just a curtain you go through to be eternally with him. And he's given us that opportunity to have eternal life. If that's you this morning and you want to commit your life to Jesus... I would urge you to talk to a friend, Christian friend, and say, I'd like to just to pray to give my life to Christ. And I know for many of us who are believers, these things also can unsettle us, and they shouldn't do unless in, in, a, in, a, in a, a big way. They, obviously, they affect us. Lord, thank you that we have one that we can look to in the heavens who's in interceding for us. Thank you that we have one that we know ultimately is going to return to this earth and set up his righteous kingdom with full of justice. Lord, thank you that whatever we're going through, uh, however uh, unjust uh, that we've, we feel about things that have, decisions that have been made by other people in other places that affect us personally, 
Lord, we thank you that we know that ultimately you will put all things right. Lord, it's in these things and these, these moments that our faith is tested and strengthened and challenged. And I pray, Lord, that you would strengthen every one of us in the name of Jesus. Lord, that you would strengthen our, our faith as we go through and face different anxieties and worries of this life. And Lord, for those that are struggling financially, I pray, Lord, will you provide for them and help them to look to you again and again for provision. Lord, for those that are facing injustice in uh, whatever way, Lord, I pray, help them to find faith in you and to know that you, they have a saviour who will ultimately right every wrong. Lord, thank you. Lord, give us wisdom too when it's right for us to stand up and to protest and to demonstrate against injustice. Lord, we don't, uh, we're fortunate in this country to be able to do that, but we pray, Lord, give us wisdom. Holy Spirit, I just want to come, pray that you come and settle on us now. Lord, I pray that you'd lift from us any fear related to things that have happened in the past that cause us to be anxious about the future. Holy Spirit, come and minister to us now, whether that's been financial challenges or decisions that other people in authority have made which have affected us badly. Lift from us that any fear or apprehension. Help us to be full of faith again. Come Holy Spirit, minister to us now.